You're listening to Martyrs and Missionaries. I'm Elise, and every episode I'll bring you a new martyr and or missionary, the called and the brave. In this episode, we're finishing up our deep dive into the life of Gladys Aylward. When we last left our hero, Gladys had collapsed upon reaching a town to preach the gospel after she the children to safety. Gladys says she has no memory of any of the following information, and in fact, due to typhus, her memory was quite hazy for the next two years. After she collapsed, a boy ran over to help her. No one knew who she was. An American missionary carried her to a mission house via a cow cart. A doctor was brought from Xi'an about 70 miles away. The doctor told them that there was very little hope for Gladys because she had typhus, pneumonia, malnutrition, a recurring fever, and so many other little things. The missionaries were determined to save her, so they took her as she was, bed and all, and put her on a cattle train headed for Xi'an. They held very little hope that she would be alive when they arrived. To their amazement, she began singing a hymn, prayed, and exited the passage on the prodigal son. She spoke entirely in Mandarin, so they assumed that she was Chinese. It was difficult for them to understand her, though, because her dialect was that of northern China. Now, this is still a problem in China. When my family and I are living in northern China, preparing to move closer to Shanghai, I had one of my students' parents tell me that the dialects in China were so different that it's almost another language altogether. And sure enough, when we moved, everything was very different, from the inflection to basic phrases and colloquialisms. Mr. Liu arrived and was able to identify Gladys, but only by her Chinese name, as he didn't know her English name. The missionaries were amazed that this little woman had gone to such extreme lengths, traveling hundreds of miles with a hundred children to bring them to safety. She stayed in the hospital until they decided there was nothing more they could do for her. Then she went to live with the American missionary couple who helped her to walk again and nursed her back to at least some degree of health, although it was tedious and gradual. As soon as she was well enough, she moved to be closer to her children in the orphanage and went to the surrounding villages sharing the gospel. But the children wanted her home, and so she moved with 14 of her children into an abandoned factory that had previously employed poor Chinese Christians before the war. The older girls took mending and sewing jobs, while the older boys took on odd jobs which helped provide for everyone's basic needs. Gladys tells an amazing story about one of these boys, a young man named Chuen. His father was a pastor who had been killed by the Japanese. His mother fled with her five children when she fell ill on a riverbank in Yangcheng. She died the next day, and Chu En and his siblings were left orphaned. Gladys was able to take him in while the other four went to other families. He was a very quiet and studious boy, very intelligent. He'd been with Gladys a few years before they made the journey across the mountains. By then, his other four siblings were no longer living. His sister had contracted tuberculosis, two others had been killed in raids, and his younger brother had joined the children's army, which had been brutally demolished. Chu En was thoughtful and serious beyond his years. Gladys knew that he should continue his education, but she didn't have the money to make that happen. One day, a doctor was traveling through Xi'an and offered to take Chuen with him to continue his studies. He returned a year later, taller and even more serious. He announced to everyone calmly and resolutely that as soon as he was able, he was going to return to Yangcheng. She emphatically told him that he was not going to go back. What was there to return to? All that he knew and loved was gone, and the city was held by the enemy. The next day, he went back to the doctor, and she thought that was the end of it. But obviously, it's not the end of it, because otherwise, that would be a really boring story to tell you. 
A few months later, Gladys was getting ready for bed when she heard noises outside of her door. She opened the door and said, Who's there? It's me, Ma, Chuen. Chuen? Are you okay? Have you run away? Oh, nothing's wrong, but I'm going home. What? I thought we settled that at New Year's. No, Ma, you settled it. I said nothing. Do you remember what you felt like when you knew God wanted you to come to China? That's how I feel. I know God has work for me in Yangcheng, and I need to go. Now, obviously, Goddess wasn't going to argue with the Lord, so she relented and agreed to help and pray for him. Being a mom, she thought practically. She prayed for a new pair of pants and some shoes. The days passed, neither one of these things she prayed for materialized. Chuen asked why she was praying for things he didn't need. He came from Yangcheng with no shoes. He'd return the same way. Pray for what I need, he asked her. What do you need, she asked. A stethoscope. A what? A device that helps you listen to people's insides. So Gladys started praying for a stethoscope. Then one afternoon, she was invited into the hut of an old refugee woman. The only light in the hut was the cooking fire, but slowly her eyes adjusted and she looked around. She saw a strange red wooden box in the corner. She asked the lady about it. Oh, it's very precious. It belonged to a lady who told us about Jesus, and I brought it all the way from Sujo, about 800 miles. Well, what's in it? Well, how should I know? I never opened it. Then how do you know it's precious? The woman shrugged. May I open it? Gladys asked. Are you her relative? Yes. How? The lady asked. I'm her fifth cousin. This was the Chinese way of claiming kinship. Well, I guess you do kind of look like her. She allowed Gladys to open the box. Inside there was some old food, some clothes, odds and ends, and in the very bottom, in a small other pouch, was a stethoscope. Gladys gave it to Chuen, who hugged it to his chest, praising God for this answer to prayer. The next day, he set off with no shoes, the same pants, and the stethoscope. She never saw him again. But she received two letters, each three months apart, telling her that he was well. Then the communist took back Yangcheng, and she feared that he may have been martyred like so many others before him. Almost two years later, she runs into a man from Yangcheng who asked her to tell him the gospel. She asked why he asked. He said all he knew was that if you had this gospel, you had peace and joy in your heart. He said he had seen people secretly baptizing in the river, though it was forbidden, because they had Christ in their hearts. But how did they know a baptism if no one was preaching? Because there is a wise young man with a curious instrument who listens to your insides and knows everything that goes on in there. He has told them about Jesus. Chuen was still there sharing the gospel. Gladys said she hoped that someday he would tell her the whole story of the stethoscope, and how it helped him during those awful days. Eventually, the Japanese, having overrun the surrounding areas, turned their gaze to Xi'an, so Gladys and the children fled to the outskirts of Shanghai, and worked again with the American missionaries who helped her when she had been ill. They asked her to speak about pioneer work at a conference they were hosting. She learned her audience was a group of 60 students who had been driven from their city and forced over 500 miles away to where they sat now. They were determined to keep up their studies and carried their benches, books, and several other things all the way there. Gladys was unable to give the lectures because she became ill again. Instead, she laid in bed, frustrated that God had led her all the way here, and she was useless. As she was laying there, she heard murmuring and sounded like praying. She peeped out her door and saw about 15 students sat around a map. One would close their eyes and point randomly at the map, look at where he had touched, asked if anyone knew about the area, and then began praying for wherever his finger had landed. After the meeting, she asked what they were doing. She learned that this particular part of the Northwest was on their hearts, and they were praying for different places each day. For three weeks, she heard them pray. 
She asked if anyone was going to go to these places they prayed for. One of the students said they couldn't go. They were still in school with no money and without a guide. So instead, they had been praying for someone to go and spy out the land. Sure enough, God had decided that Gladys was that person. Within a few days, she set off, but knew that before long, the language would become more difficult for her because of the dialect differences. She was able to find a guide from one village to the next until she came to a village that told her quite resolutely not to go on. There was nothing else. This was the end. She argued that the world didn't just end like that. Seeing that she was determined to go, a Christian named Dr. Huang offered to go with her for five days. He was curious about what lay outside of his district. Five days stretched into nine, and no one they met had ever heard of Jesus. By day eleven, they couldn't find a single soul. There was nothing but wilderness. Gladys was getting irritated. Where would they eat? Where would they sleep? She wasn't too keen on the idea of sleeping outside alone with a man she barely knew. She abruptly told Dr. Huang they should pray. She then commenced to praying very selfishly all about her needs and her wants. In contrast, Dr. Huang prayed that God would send them the one you want to tell about Jesus. Gladys felt ashamed by her lack of faith and her selfishness. She and Dr. Huang began to sing a song which carried far into the mountain air. Suddenly, Dr. Huang shot up, saying, There's our man, and took off running. Gladys could see nothing and just sat there bewildered. Then she saw him, a tiny speck in the distance. Dr. Huang yelled at her to hurry up. She scrambled up the mountain and came face to face with the Tibetan monk. He invited them to come to the lamasery. Gladys was confused because monks aren't supposed to have anything to do with women. Why were they inviting her to their sacred temple? Then the monk said, We waited long for you to tell us of the God who loves. As they climbed up the path, Gladys was amazed by how beautiful it was. On one side was the yellow barren mountainside they had just climbed, and on the other was the rich green grass covered in lovely flowering vines. In the middle was the stately imposing lamasery. Once inside, they were greeted by more monks and brought everything they could possibly think of to make them comfortable. Tiger rugs, cushions, water for washing, dish after dish of delicious food. Gladys went to her room to rest for a while, but was soon roused by two monks who asked her to join them. She and Dr. Huang were escorted from various beautiful courtyards until they came to a very large one. In this courtyard were roughly 500 large cushions arranged in a semicircle, with a monk seated reverently in each one. They were taken to two empty cushions in the middle and asked to sit. Gladys nervously asked Mr. Huang what they were to do. Sing a chorus, he said. She finished a song and was greeted by pure silence. Dr. Huang followed up by telling them of Jesus. She sang, he talked. He sang, she talked. Still the monks sat, completely silent, their heads bent so that you could not see their faces. Finally, Gladys whispered to Dr. Huang that she might fall off the cushion in her exhaustion. So they finished and left the hall. She readied for bed when she heard a knock on the door. She opened it and saw two monks. Woman, are you too tired to tell us more? They were able to come into her room as long as there were two of them. They came in and listened, then left. Two more came in, listened, and left. This went on all night. Each time they would ask the same question. How and why did he die? Will you explain how it is that he could love me? Goddess writes here, These men never questioned that God was the creator of the world. They never doubted the fact of the virgin birth. They did not consider any of the miracles incredible. To them, it was the wonder of God's love which obsessed them. The story of Christ's death on Calvary filled their minds with awe and reverence. The next morning, she discovered that Dr. Huang had had the same experience. They stayed for a week, and on the last night, Gladys received a summons from the head lama whom she had not yet met. Dr. Huang was not invited, just Gladys. After they had been speaking for a while, she asked, 
Why did you let me, a foreign woman, talk to your monks? Each year, his monks go down to the cities to sell a licorice herb that grows on their mountain. When his monks were passing through a village, they saw a man waving a piece of paper, saying, Who wants one? Salvation is free and for nothing. If you want to learn more, come to the gospel hall. His monks took one of the tracks, which he still had, now worn and in pieces, stuck to a wall. It was a simple, ordinary track that simply quoted John 3.16. From this, they learned of the God who loves. Each year, for five years, when the monks came into the cities to sell the herb, they searched to learn more of the God who loves. But they could find no one to tell them. The monk who had first discovered the track decided he would not return until he learned more. So he traveled and traveled until he found someone who pointed him to an outpost of China Inland Mission. The Chinese evangelist there told him all he could and gave him a copy of the Gospels. They hurried back to the lamasary eager to read. Most of it they could not understand except for one part. Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel. So they gathered that one day someone would come and tell them more. All they had to do was wait. And wait they did, for three years. Two of his monks were gathering sticks when they heard singing. They knew these were the messengers they were waiting for, because only people who knew God would sing. Gladys said, I don't know if they came out of the lamasary. I had preached his gospel in this place that God had appointed. I left the rest to him and the work of the Holy Spirit. No lamasary stands on this beautiful hillside now, for the communists destroyed it and drove away all its inmates. What happened to those 500 lamas, I often wonder. That many of them believed, trusted, and received salvation, I have no shadow of doubt. God prepared the soil. Dr. Huang and I were proud to be used as his messengers. Only in eternity will we ever learn the result of one of the strangest weeks I've ever spent. Dr. Huang headed back home to his wife and kids, and Gladys headed to a new city with only a tattered gown to her name. She was taken in by a doctor and his wife. The city was huge and filled with students. There seemed to be a church on every corner. She wasn't sure why God had brought her here. She's sitting in the home where she's been staying, and she hears two men talking about some place in the city where no one has heard of Jesus. Before she could catch herself, she blurted out they must be mistaken. There must be hundreds of Christians in this city. They said she must be new here. We're talking about the prison. The city was home to the second largest prison in China, filled with the worst of the worst. She talked with them a bit more, but wasn't too concerned. Her work was in the towns and the villages, not in prisons. Now, by part three of God as a story, you should know that God definitely wanted her in the prison. She writes in her book, Now, for the next few days, I had no peace. God told me very definitely that whether I liked it or not, those men in the prison were my business. Every one of them had a soul for which Christ died and I had come to China to proclaim the gospel wherever God led me. So she goes to the governor to ask for permission to enter the prison. He's exceedingly polite, but his condescension was on par with his politeness. She told him of her intention to share the gospel in the prison. What do you intend to do if I allow you to talk with the men? I intend to alter your prison. Ma'am, I have been governor here for five years, and have not altered it in the slightest. Ah, but I have Jesus Christ. He brings about the alteration. She obtained her pass and was escorted into the prison. Rows of prisoners shouted and jeered at her. She had to be placed on the mound because she was so short. Each day she came into the prison, got up on the mound, shared stories from the Bible, and trotted off, her heart hammering wildly in her chest the whole time. When she wasn't in the prison, she was visiting with Christian lepers in the leper colony. They joined her in praying for the prisoners. She credits their faithful, earnest prayers with strengthening her in those early weeks in the prison. She had one convert, and then five. They assisted her in ministering in the prison, but the prison as a whole was not altered. Thousands still jeered unaffected. That is, until Mr. Sean came. 
Mr. Sean was a bright, arrogant, hateful, hardened murderer. Gladys felt there was something about him which was utterly evil. He looked at her in an offensive manner and said unrepeatable things. She really disliked him, but prayed for him and got her friends in the leper colony praying for him as well. One day, she turned to speak to him, and he swore at her and spat in her face. She'd actually come to kind of hate him, and I think we would all feel similarly, if we're honest. Months went by, and there were about 40 converts, but still no great change in the prison. She finished speaking as usual, and the prisoners lined up to silently trot back to their cells. Gladys watched them pass, nodding and smiling. Down the line, she saw Mr. Sean, this man she disliked so much. She heard God say to her almost audibly, Speak to that man. Oh, he hates me. Like, really hates me. He spat at me. Besides, it's against the rules to talk to him anyway. We can always come up with a good reason to not do something God has told us to do. Speak to him, she heard again. She broke out in a cold sweat as she watched Mr. Sean get closer. In a panic, she put her hand on him. Oh, Mr. Sean, aren't you miserable? Of all the stupid remarks, she thought immediately. With a horrible curse, he threw off her hand. What is it to you if I'm miserable? Because I'm so happy. Of course you are. Doesn't the door open for you whenever you want to go out? Ah, but that isn't the reason. It's because Jesus Christ died for me. After he passed, she realized what she had done. She as a woman had touched a man. It was untoward. She wasn't supposed to do that. She left the prison feeling ashamed. Mr. Sean was having his own crisis, and I'll read from the book here. Mr. Sean followed the line and sat down on the stone in the inner courtyard, his head bowed in his hands. A few minutes later, Duke Hora, the first man who had been converted in the prison, saw him sitting there. Are you going to be ill, he asked, staring at him closely. Did you see what she did? What? She touched me. No, that's a lie. It's no lie. She put her hand on my shoulder. I can't believe it. Another prisoner who had been listening joined in. She did touch him. She touched me as if she loves me, Mr. Sean gasped. Perhaps she does love you, Ducor replied. What? A clean woman like her love me, a murderer who has cursed her and spat at her? Yes, I believe she could, because she believes that God loves you no matter what you've done. Mr. Sean was converted not because of a great sermon, but because years ago in London, God had taken a girl and asked her to give him her hands, her feet, her whole body for his use, and that day God had touched Mr. Sean through that poor human instrument. Mr. Sean's conversion began a revival in the prison. They had baptisms which lasted three days. Men hungered for the word. Testimonies, including Mr. Sean's, were printed in the prison paper. The governor himself was converted, proclaiming that the gospel did in one year what he had been unable to do in five. Now I'm going to skip forward a little bit because I really want to share the following story with you. It highlights the atrocities of the communists and it underscores the conviction of the believers there in China. Before we cover that, I want to say that God's timing is perfect and gracious. Just before the communists came, the city had a revival. Hundreds were converted, including many university students. Gladys said for months she felt as if they were in the days of the early church. God was strengthening them and preparing them for what lay ahead. I'm going to read from the book again because I honestly don't want to paraphrase and lose any of the impact and importance. So here we go. The communist party took complete control of the university and to each of the 500 students was handed a long form on which a series of questions was to be answered truthfully. I managed to get hold of one of these forms, and because I wanted to understand what they involved, I tried to fill it in. Some of the questions were awkward, some seemingly irrelevant or utterly ridiculous, such as, do you know what your grandmother died of? How many children did your uncle have? 
How much money did your grandfather have when he died? There was no mention of religion, no mention of a political party, but right at the end, when one was tired and confused, came out an all-important question. What position are you in? If for the government, put a circle. If against, put an X. This was the question which meant either compliance with all the authorities decreed or future unpleasantness. If one put an X, it would mean he would be outside the party. He would have no job. He would be poor. He would be an outcast. Almost all of these 500 students had started their education in Christian schools. If they had been ill, they had gone to Christian hospitals. Because all that was good in health and education had come to the isolated districts of China through the missions. Also, many had been converted during the recent campaigns. When the 500 forms were counted, 300 had put circles, 200 had put an X. The communists looked grave. They called together the 300 who had signed the agreement with those in power and told them there was work for them to do. They could use what methods they liked, except that of actually taking life, to force the 200 into line. For the next month, the most horrible forms of teasing, petty cruelty, and unpleasant irritations went on. Then the forms were handed out again, but to the utter amazement of the authorities, there were fewer circles and more X's. How had this happened? They began to make urgent inquiries, and they learned that every morning the Christian students held a prayer meeting. In the university, the lectures began at 9 o'clock. All the students lived on campus, and at 8 they went to breakfast. But at 7, the Christians had gathered in groups for prayer and Bible study in order to gain strength for the day of testing they knew which lay before them. When the non-Christians discovered this, they had broken up the group and caused pandemonium. So the Christians gathered at 6 o'clock. Again, their opponents discovered them, so they rose even earlier and met at 5 o'clock. So it went on until by the end of the month, some of the Christians were hardly getting any sleep. The authorities took immediate action. We'll stop all this congregating together. We'll put an end to all this prayer and Bible reading, they announced. Each Christian was isolated and put under the guard of ten red-hot communists for three months. Their every movement was watched, and night and day they were talked at, jeered at, and indoctrinated. We watched those poor isolated Christians getting paler, thinner, and more haggard. There was no way of contacting them and we trembled for them. They were young in years, and many of them only babes in the Christian faith. But all we could do was pray for them that their faith would not fail in spite of all the fiery darts of the wicked one. At the end of the three months, we were all forced to appear in the market square. Under a huge squad of communist police, we saw the 200 students marched into the square. In a witness box stood a man with a list of names. He called out the first. A girl of 17 stepped forward. She was refined and beautiful, and had been brought up in one of those lovely courtyards that belonged to the wealthy of Peking before the war. She had been sent here for safety. Now she stood before her accusers. What position are you standing in now, bellowed the voice of the man in the box. She walked to the little platform. She faltered a little, and we thought she was going to fall. Why put this slim, fail slip of a girl at first, we questioned. Poor child, how can she stand? Then her voice rang out suddenly clear and said, Sir, when I went into my three-month indoctrination, I thought Jesus Christ was real. I thought the Bible was real. Now I know that Jesus Christ is real, and I know this book is true. One after the other, those 200 names were called out, and not one faltered. Though they knew enough of their persecutions to know that by now they would be made to suffer. Every one of them was beheaded that very day in the marketplace. Before each execution, the victim was given one last chance to recant. But even those at the end, who had been forced to watch the terrible butchery of all the others, did not flinch. 
why people asked did God allow it? Was it because he loved them so much they took them before the worst terrors and tortures befell? Theirs maybe was the easier death. They went straight to those many mansions their Savior had gone before them to prepare. They had followed him even unto death. Even with all the persecution going on in China, the believers there were concerned with the direction of England. The country, they said, was more concerned with movie stars and sports than with Jesus. Gladys returned to England after 20 years as a Chinese citizen, determined to spread the word about the faith of the Chinese church and shake England out of her spiritual lethargy. I'm not going to cover all of that. If you want to know more, read her book that I have conveniently attached in this episode description for you to enjoy. She tried to return to China after her mother died, but she was denied access by the communists. She stayed in Hong Kong for a time before settling in the newly formed Taiwan in 1958, where many of her children and now their families lived. There she opened an orphanage and worked until her death in 1970, just short of her 68th birthday. I've enjoyed these past three episodes going through the life of Gladys Aylward. She saved hundreds of lives during the war. Those children had children who had children who had children. Thousands, if not tens of thousands of people were born because of Gladys' answer to God's calling. And even that pales in comparison to the spiritual legacy she left behind. She closes her book this way. My heart is full of praise that one so insignificant, uneducated and ordinary in every way could be used to his glory and for the blessing of his people in poor, persecuted China. If you enjoyed this episode and the other two as well, tell a friend, encourage them to binge listen so you can talk about the incredible life of Gladys Aylward. As always, thanks for listening to Mars and Missionaries. I'm Elise.